following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, again, as I mentioned, some of you may be thinking, uh, guys, you got your holidays mixed up. This is June. This is not December. Why are we singing Christmas carols? Uh, Why are we talking about the birth of Christ as if it were December 25th? Uh, We did not get the church calendar mixed up. Um, It isn't that the choir is just longing to sing some Christmas carols, and so we all have to sing them together. Uh, Even though some of my kids really like uh, Christmas music, they'd sing it all year if they could. It also isn't that we're proposing to celebrate Christmas on a different time, that we want to change the holiday. Um, though June is probably actually closer to his real birth than December is. But we're drawn to Christmas and the Christmas theme this morning because of the passage before us in Micah 5. It's a passage that's been made famous by the Christmas story. In fact, it was made famous uh, on the day uh, after his birth when some Gentiles showed up in Jerusalem, some very prominent Gentiles, and they showed up looking for the king of the Jews. And they came to Herod, who was ruler at that time in Jerusalem, and they came to his palace asking him, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have followed his star and come to worship him. You remember how Herod felt about that? Really? Oh, that's great! I'd like to meet him. I want to worship him too. Well, that may be what he said, but what was he thinking, Right? It's actually the scripture says in Matthew 2, as he's describing the situation, it says that Herod was troubled, right? The guy was paranoid about losing his throne. In fact, he had killed family members in order to protect it. So he had sent or wanted to find out where this child had been born so that he could do away with him. And so remember, he gathered the scribes together, right? Those learned in the scriptures. And he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? And immediately... They responded to Herod with these famous words in Matthew 2, 5. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for that this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, these scribes answered, Without any hesitation, Herod, we we know exactly where the Messiah is to be born. In fact, we have learned it from the prophet. The prophet said he's going to be born in Bethlehem, just a few miles down yonder. So they learned this from whom they said was a prophet. And which prophet did they learn this from? How'd you know? (laughs) Yeah, Micah. In fact, Micah 5, 2, right? It's a famous passage that they quoted. But... Do you know what Micah said before and after Micah 5.2? Do you know what the context was of that verse and why he said it? And how could the scribes be so confident that this verse was speaking of the Messiah? And how does this verse fit into Micah's overall message, the message of the book or the message of chapter 5? I think many of us are familiar with Micah 5.2, but it becomes a little more murky when we move beyond that in the book of Micah. And to be honest, before we started this series on Micah, I couldn't have answered those questions with any confidence. But right before our eyes, within the Christmas story, 
we have this wonderful prophecy from our own prophet Micah being fulfilled. So this morning we're going to dig into that prophecy. And look at why did Micah give it? And what did he say before and after it? And how does it fit into his overall message? And we do this not because we want to enrich our knowledge of Christmas trivia, but so that we would know with greater detail what Micah said and what the source of Matthew's quote was so that we'd have a clear glimpse of this child who these magi so earnestly sought after so that we would understand why these accomplished and learned wise men, why they would lavish such gifts upon this child and why these noble men would fall down on their face before this child when they meet him. And so if you're not there already, if you'd please turn to Micah 5, and I would again ask in honor of the Lord's word, if you'd please stand as I read from Micah chapter 5. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With the rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land, when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there's none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. And it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have no fortune tellers anymore. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherim from among you and destroy your cities and I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Uh, you may be seated. Okay, there's a lot here. And to understand Micah chapter 5, we, re- we need to remember again that it's part of an overall message, a message that Micah began back in chapter 3. If you remember when we were back in chapter 3, that's when Micah berated the leaders, the political and spiritual leaders of Judah for their injustice, for their abuse, for their lack of care and concern for the people they had been given charge over. And so at the end of that chapter, Micah declares God's judgment of destroying the destruction of Jerusalem. But right after that in chapter 4, right after that declaration of God's judgment, there's this abrupt shift in tone from judgment to hope. 
as in the beginning of chapter 4 where Micah describes God's future glorious kingdom, that it will be a kingdom of true peace, of, of prosperity, that they would be protected, that they would be cared for. To the faithful who had suffered in Micah's day, who had been the victim of corruption and of sin and injustice, that they would experience a real peace. They would experience true prosperity. They would experience real justice. There would be a time that Micah describes there when the whole world would come to Jerusalem in order to learn from God how to follow him. But before that time would arrive, Micah then transitions in tone again in verse 9 of chapter 4 when he speaks of difficult times that the people of Israel would face before God's glorious kingdom would come. He describes times of attack, of, of exile, times of being scattered. And in fact, he describes these in verses in 4, 9 through 5, 1 in, in a series of three events, three vignettes of, of situations that would come upon them before God's final and glorious kingdom would come. And I want us to look back briefly at those three events because they're important in laying a foundation for what he's about to say in Micah chapter 5. So if you could look with me back at 4.9 for a moment. After speaking of these blissful times in God's millennial kingdom, Micah then speaks of the near future, the Babylonian exile that was about to come upon them. And he says in verse 9, he introduces it this way, Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Rise in labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And then in verse 11, Micah moves forward to a far future event, the battle of Armageddon, where he says in verse 11, And now... Many nations have assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose. For he's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron and your hooves I will make bronze that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. So again here he's describing Armageddon, the nations gathering and God delivering his people. And then we come to the third event in Micah. Micah 5.1. We read that just a moment ago where Micah says, Now, muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They've laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So here we're given three events. Each one of these three events is introduced by the word now. If you notice verse 9, verse 11, 5, 1. Now is that marker that introduces the next event. We had the Babylonian exile back in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. And then Armageddon in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 4. And then we have this third event in Micah 5, 1. And here he speaks of Israel being under a siege. And he talks about the judge of Israel, probably a reference to the king, that the, the king would be struck in the face with a rod, be totally humiliated. The question is, what event is Micah referring to here? Some say that he's speaking of the humiliation of Christ. Since Christ is going to be mentioned in the next verse, and Jesus indeed suffered being hit by rods many times, but these did not come in the midst of a siege. Others say that the siege that 
that is mentioned here by Micah is the time when the Assyrians, not long after this, probably just a few years after Micah spoke, that when the Assyrians under Sennacherib came and laid siege in Judah and surrounded Jerusalem ready to attack, and they say that this event is what's being spoken of. But the problem is with that view is the fact that the Assyrians did not take over Jerusalem. The king was not humiliated. Rather, it was completely opposite to that. God delivered Israel from them in that day, wiped out the entire Assyrian army. So I think the event Micah is referring to is he's going back again to the Babylonian siege, to the exile that's going to happen about 100 years after Micah first spoke these words. Because in that event, there was indeed a siege. There were three, in fact. And King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came upon uh, Jerusalem for a third time. And during that third siege, he took King Zedekiah, the last reigning king on the throne of Judah. He took him and he beat him and he plucked out or gouged out his eyes after he killed his children in front of him. So that indeed was a time where the judge of Israel or the king suffered great humiliation. And so we have... These three events, these three events that Micah has described. And there are a few questions that I have in thinking about it. Why does he give us these events? Why does he bring these things up? The first question I have is, why is there such a large gap of time between Micah 5.1 and Micah 5.2 when there is no such gap in the other two events? Babylonian exile in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, that covers less than 70 years by the time they're in exile and delivered. Or the Battle of Armageddon is even a much shorter period of time between the nations gathering and God delivering his people. But Micah 5.1 is an event that occurs about 600 years before Christ's birth. And then he mentions Christ's birth. So why this huge gap? Why didn't he pick an event that was closer in time to the birth of the Messiah? It's interesting that the person who composed the chapter divisions in the hebrew bible actually saw this gap as well because he put verse 5 micah 5 1 as part of chapter 4 so if you look in the hebrew bible it's actually the end of chapter 4 he saw a distinct contrast or difference between 5 1 and 5 2 there's a second question that i just mentioned a moment ago why does micah take us from the joys of the millennial kingdom and then gives us these three events two of which are he repeats that are events which are tragic events which are dark and difficult again the exile in 4 9 and 10 armageddon in 4 11 to 13 back to the exile in 5 1 what's micah doing here i mentioned last time that we covered chapter 4 There were a couple of reasons that I gave at that time that I think he was bringing up. One is the fact that before Micah, or before the people of Israel would experience God's glorious kingdom, there would be some dark days. That before the the mountain peak, if you will, they would experience some valleys. And Micah wanted to remind them that God would be with them in these valleys. Because again, with each of these events that he brings up, he describes how God would deliver them. How he would be their rescuer, their redeemer. That God would always have his eye upon his people. But there's another reason. I didn't mention it last time, but I think it's probably, in my mind, the most prominent reason that Micah had referred to these events. Because he's building to something here. He's building a tension within this chapter. He's taking us to a, a climactic event. And he's doing that by bringing up these specific events. 
There's something running in the background here before we get to Micah 5.2. There's something that he is seeking to accomplish, seeking to, to make us wonder about before we get to that specific verse. Again, look back at verse 9. When Micah transitions from speaking of God's kingdom, his glorious kingdom, and he speaks then of the exile, notice in verse 9, he does it by introducing prophetically these two questions. It's like he's speaking to that future audience going through the exile. And he asks them these two questions, right? He says there in verse 9, Why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? And indeed, during the exile... There was, their king was taken away, as I mentioned a moment ago. That did happen. That would be one of their experiences. But don't gloss over that question too quickly. For Micah, I think, has cleverly inserted this question, not only to point out the situation that would take place historically during the Babylonian exile, but I think he's also trying to get them to understand, get us to understand and see something even beyond that. I think it's really a key question for the entire chapter. It's a key question that lingers even up to Micah 5.1 when it says the judge of Israel would be struck on the cheek, would be smitten with the rod, he'd be humiliated. For you see, before Micah 5.2, the greatest problem has not yet been resolved. Is there no king among you? For who is it that would ultimately deliver them from their enemies? Who is it that would rescue them from their destruction? Who is it that would bring in God's glorious kingdom? Who is it that would reign on the throne in that kingdom and bring about peace and prosperity and righteousness? Who is it that God's people needed so that they could be God's people, forgiven, cleansed, justified? So you see, before Seeing God's kingdom, before getting to God's kingdom, there's something missing, isn't there? What's missing? What has he not spoken of? What has he tried to get them to understand and recognize and see in that little question buried in verse 9? What's missing? The king! The king is missing! Is there no king among you? And the answer to that question is yes! There is God, no king. God's king has not come. That question in verse 9 of chapter 4, it hangs out there in the air waiting for an answer. And Micah gives the answer like a loud trumpet blast in Micah 5.2 when he says, Good news, Israel. Your king is coming. God's ruler is going to be raised up from this little town of Bethlehem. And that good news isn't just good news for Israel, right? good news for us too isn't it for israel's king is our king the one who would deliver them is the one who delivers us and you know what the magi knew that the magi recognized and understood that because again remember these were were noblemen from the far east they traveled several hundred miles most likely some think they may have been descendants or part of a group that originated in babylon the the wise men there the scientists the scholars, perhaps they may have learned of the Messiah through Daniel. You know, Daniel wrote about the Messiah. He lived in Babylon. We don't know for sure. But, but these guys who are pagan Gentiles or from a pagan Gentile land, they come several hundred miles from the east in order to search out this one that was going to be born in this obscure land in Palestine, which was under the authority of another nation. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? And they were bringing a bunch of stuff with them. 
to give to this king. That's because they realized not only did Israel need this king, but so did they. So do we. We need a king to deliver us, don't we? Not from the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Romans. We need a king to deliver us from sin. We need a king to deliver us from Satan. We need a king to deliver us from the judgment to come. We need a king to deliver us from the trappings of this world. We need a king to deliver us from ourselves. And it's that king that Micah reveals in Micah 5.2. So we move from the need for a king in chapter 4 to the description of the king in Micah 5, 2 through 6. And Micah begins this description of the king with an emphatic contrast. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, to this point he's been speaking to Jerusalem. If we look in chapter 5, there are many references to Zion and Jerusalem, Mount Zion. He's been speaking to Jerusalem specifically. Now he shifts his attention to this little place outside of Jerusalem, a little place called Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is the Bethlehem where King David was born. Ephrathah is just another name that was used um, back earlier in time for the same region. I think Micah probably added it here in order to clarify. This is the Bethlehem located in the region of Judea because there is another Bethlehem up further north in Zebulun. And this Bethlehem, though David was born there, was not a very large city either in population or in stature. In fact, in the list of Judean villages that's mentioned in Joshua 15, we don't see Bethlehem. Another list in Nehemiah 11 that gives all these different places in the region of Judah, we don't see Bethlehem. Micah says here that it was little, insignificant. So insignificant it wouldn't really be considered a village or a clan, he uses that term. So Philip Brooks, who wrote the song we sang earlier, A Little Town of Bethlehem, got it right. It was a very obscure place. But oh, how that would change. In fact, from this lowly village, right, this village scarcely worth mentioning, wasn't even really considered among the towns of Judah. From this humble place would come one that would change the course of history, one that would change eternal destinies, one that would be God's king. Micah tells us that this coming ruler was no ordinary king, no ordinary man. He says, therefore, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of, and the New American Standard has, eternity. That word eternity is a Hebrew word, alam. It, it actually, the basic meaning is from the distant past. It can mean an eternity past, depending on the context. And here that would seem a possibility, since we are speaking of God the Son becoming man. He is eternal God, becoming man in Jesus Christ. But notice here Micah says his goings forth. He's focusing attention on his actions, his activity. When God's ruler arrives on the scene in Bethlehem, I think what Micah is saying here, this is not the first time that he's been here. In fact, the second member of the Trinity has been active on earth all through human history. The Old Testament identified him as the angel of the Lord who had come many times on this earth. It was the angel of the Lord who had comforted Hagar when she was banished by Sarah. It was the angel of the Lord who met with Abraham and told him that within a year he would have a son. 
was the angel of the Lord who stood outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, calling down fire from heaven. It was the angel of the Lord who wrestled with Jacob, who spoke from the burning bush. It was the angel of the Lord standing in front of Balaam's donkey that day. It was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Gideon, who met with Elijah. It was the angel of the Lord who destroyed that Assyrian army that had gathered under Sennacherib outside of Jerusalem. Micah says he would come again. But this time he would take on human flesh, become a man, and become God's king. Verse 3 indicates that God would give up his people, that, that is, hand them over for a time as a consequence, a time of correction. And he says there a time until she who is in labor has born a child. Now some think he's referring here to when Mary giving birth to the Messiah. That would seem plausible given the fact he's mentioning the Messiah coming in verse 2. But notice here that the ruler comes first in Bethlehem, from Bethlehem, that's his birth, and then the people are given over in verse 3. So this reference to labor and birth, I think all he's doing here is he's using it as a metaphor. Just like he used back in chapter 4. Remember when he talked about uh, the people of Israel, they'd be going through trials, they'd be going through this exile and be suffering. And he uses this uh, picture of a, a, woman in child, a woman in labor giving birth. I think that's what he's speaking of here. The she here is referring back again to Israel. Israel's going to continue to experience suffering for a period of time. Until the time, notice at the end of verse 3, where he will regather the remnant. He will regather his people. Brethren, he says, will return to the sons of Israel. Jews from every tribe will be reunified. And when is that going to take place? Remember? When Israel's restored. When the Messiah returns. In fact, look back at Micah 2 for a minute. Right at the end there, we get a similar statement. Micah 2, verse 12 where God speaking through Micah says these words. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go out by it. So they're what? King. That's a reference to the Messiah there. Their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. So both here and in Micah, we're being given a description that when the Messiah returns, he will regather his people together and shepherd them, that Israel would be one once again. So verses 2 to 4 actually take us from the first coming to the second coming. And here we see in verse 4 in chapter 5, Micah says that Jesus will be their shepherd. He will shepherd their flock As James Boyce says, we can't see Jesus and shepherd in the same sentence without remembering what he said in John chapter 10 about himself, right? When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And how is he a good shepherd? He said there, I'm a good shepherd, the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and they know me. And no one will pluck them out of my hand, right? This is the shepherd that Micah is speaking of. And notice at the end of verse 4, this is no wimpy shepherd. (laughs) It's a powerful shepherd. In fact, he says here, this shepherd, this ruler that will come out from Bethlehem, God's king will be great to the ends of the earth. 
saying God's king, his authority and power will stretch all around the globe and there'll be nobody that can thwart or overcome him. I'm reminded of Psalm 2, where it describes the nations raging against God's anointed one, his Messiah. Rome put him on a cross, but he rose from the dead. At Armageddon, as we just mentioned, the nations will be gathering around Israel to destroy Israel, to destroy her king. But yet again, they will not succeed. And then Psalm 2 ends with this exhortation. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There he's giving a warning to the nations, telling them who this king really is. And beloved, this strikes at the heart of the gospel message because it describes Jesus as the conquering king who is to be worshipped. And I have a question for all of us. Is that the Jesus that you speak of? When you talk about the gospel, when you share about Christ, what picture do you give them of Jesus? Is he the conquering king? Or is he more of the one that has a ticket to heaven? Do you describe him more as, you know, follow him or love Jesus and you'll be blessed and happy? And those are true things. Those are part of the gospel. But do we say those things to the neglect of what's at the core of the message, which is Jesus Christ is the King and He has come and He's coming again. Our gospel must not be man-centered, beloved, but Christ-centered. Amen? It's not about the saved at the end of the day. It's about the Savior. It's not about our deliverance. It's about the deliverer. It's not a focus on the subjects of the kingdom, but on the King of the kingdom. And that is where we have to keep our eyes upon. And I've appreciated Pastor Ed's messages the last couple of weeks. He's been reminding us that the point of the story is not solely focused on that we get saved, but it is on seeing the glory of God as he works out that salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of God became man. That's what Mike is talking about here. That he is God's ruler. That he was born in this lowly, dusty town that couldn't even be called a town. That he was laid in the manger as we sung about earlier. That he lived and then died this shameful death. He was more than smitten on the cheek, wasn't he? Put on a cross and died that death to set men free. (laughs) What a wonderful Messiah. John Piper said, The deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation, on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When he chooses, he chooses freely in order to magnify the glory of his own mercy, not the glory of our distinctions. So let us say with the angels, glory to God in the highest, not glory to us. We get the joy. He gets the glory. I think that's well put. The glory he talks about here is further seen when Micah says in Micah 5, 5, that this one, that Christ will be peace. And your translation probably has our peace or their peace. 
But in the original, it's simply peace. He's saying that, that this one, this ruler, Jesus, personifies peace, that he is peace, that he brings peace, that he keeps peace, that he promotes peace. We see that peace carried out in verses 5 and 6 as he describes protecting his people. And there he mentions the Assyrians or the land of Nimrod from which Assyria is in Assyria. And Nimrod is the one who founded Assyria. He mentions these because that was the enemy in Micah's day, right? They had plagued the northern tribes. Now they had plagued the tribe of Judah. But I think he's using Assyria here just as symbolic of all of Israel's enemies. That any enemy that comes upon them... God would protect, because again, he is peace. And it's interesting here, Paul picks up on this phrase. Back when we were journeying through Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says there in Ephesians 2.14, he says, Jesus himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. And there Paul was talking about as Jew and Gentile were becoming saved and being part of the church, that they were being made one in that church, that we are all one in Christ. I don't think Paul there is talking about the fact that Micah was saying, uh, talking about the church, but Paul is drawing upon Micah's theme that Christ, as the Prince of Peace, when he gathers his people, there is peace. Again, he establishes peace. He brings peace. He promotes peace. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we can't remind ourselves of too often, is it? That a relationship with Jesus brings peace, not conflict. And if you calling yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, then the fruit of your life should be unity, not discord, right? Because discord is inconsistent with who Jesus is and with what he brings about and produces. And if Jesus is peace, then we should be models of peace. Amen? Let's not forget that. We have to keep telling ourselves that. Because it is a challenge to be at peace. Getting back to Micah, we've seen the need for a king and the description of the king. In the last half of chapter 5, verses 7 to 15, we see the actions of the king. And the actions of the king are essentially divided into two. Verses 7 to 9, his action is exalting his people, and then in 10 through 15, in purifying his people. Notice at the beginning of verse 7. He speaks now of the remnant of Jacob. Notice there he says, Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples. He repeats it again in verse 8. This phrase, remnant of Jacob, is an important term in the Old Testament. I call it one of those theologically charged terms because it's describing those who are faithful to God, particularly in the end times, in the last days. Micah 2.12, we saw this term where God says he will gather the remnant Upon the return of the Messiah, Isaiah describes God preserving the remnant in Isaiah 10 and 11. And in Zechariah chapter 12, he describes a a portion of Israel, the remnant, those that remain being saved in the last days. They would be set apart. Romans 11.25 speaks of a time when God will save all Israel. Revelation 7 describes 144,000 from all 12 tribes of Israel being protected by God in the last days. When Jesus returns, when the Messiah comes, it is then, it says, that he will raise up the saved among Israel. And notice in verses 7 through 9, he describes that through his people, there will either be God's blessing coming to the nations or his judgment. 
Notice, look there at verse 7 and 8. Notice how closely they parallel one another. Both have the same subject. They begin with the same phrase. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the peoples or nations. And then both are followed with uh, the simile, like, like do, or like a lion. And then both verses conclude with the result that's introduced by the word which, W-H-I-C-H. And though these verses almost exactly match in terms of their structure, they are completely contrasting in terms of their effect. For in verse 7, it describes the positive impact that Israel would have among those around them. But in verse 8, the negative impact. In fact, in verse 7, it describes them like a refreshing dew or, or a rain. In the summer months in Israel, it's pretty dry, kind of like some other places we know about, right? So the description of them being as dew or rain would be the kind of communicating this idea of them bringing life or being refreshing. But then in verse 8, it says they will be like a lion. Rather than being a source of life, they would be ones that destroy life. And the, again, the picture or the idea there it is he's expressing here is that they would be a vehicle of God's judgment. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty that he who is not with me is against me. And in these verses, we see this idea. Those who love God's people, that's just because they love God. And those who are enemies of God's people, it's because they're an enemy of God. And so God would deal with them through his people accordingly. And here in regards to the blessing, we aren't told specifically how they are like dew and how they are like these showers which water the earth. But remember, God did tell Abraham that in your seed all the nations would be blessed, right? And we know that blessing came through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, and there'll be more blessing upon his return for those who've turned from their sin and put their trust in the Messiah. But again, here, by contrast, the enemies of any who love God are also God's enemies. And back in the end of chapter 4, he described how uh, these enemies would be like grain on the threshing floor and be crushed under hoof and under the sled that is used to thresh. Here he has a more graphic picture of a lion tearing the flesh off of its prey. These verses here in verse 7 to 9, they're a description of God exalting his people, the actions of the king. But a second action given in verses 10 through 15 are that he would also be purifying his people. Notice there, through a series of very strong and direct actions on God's part, how he describes this. Every line, in fact, beginning in the middle of verse 10. He says, I will cut off your horses. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off your cities. I will tear down your strongholds. I will cut off your sorceries. You will not have diviners. I'll cut off your idols. You will bow down no longer. I'll uproot your Asherah poles. I'll destroy your places of idol worship. And after reading those phrase after phrase after phrase, you realize, wow, God's not messing around here. He's serious. The horses, the chariots, the strongholds, the cities that he mentions in verses 10 and 11 all focus around those things in which Israel depended for their protection rather than ultimately trusting in God. Then in 12 to 14, God gives several examples of idolatry, that they would be removed as well, that things that they worshipped and trusted in for their health and for their food, for their prosperity, rather than trusting in God. And at first, it, it seems in these verses that this is judgment again, that God's, like he's done in other parts of Micah, here he is, he's judging people of Israel again. But I think the tone here is not one of judgment, but one of cleansing and renewal. Because again, remember the context of this chapter. 
He's speaking of the coming of the king, the Messiah. When he returns, he'll exalt his people. And then he gives these verses in 10 through 14 where and in order to do that, in order to have this unhindered relationship and fellowship with his people, he's going to get rid of anything that would come in the way of that. Any idol, anything they were going to depend on. He intends to remove them. In his mercy, he will take away any and all hindrances to perfect fellowship with him. And in taking these things away, it's not like he's going to gather them up and take them out into the alley and throw them in the garbage can. No, he wants to completely annihilate them. In fact, that word cut off, it's repeated four times here. Don't think scissors, think sledgehammer. That's exactly the picture. That word means to wipe out, to destroy, to annihilate, to exterminate. He wants to take anything that gets in the way of our worship, of our fellowship, of our unity with Him, and He wants to completely obliterate it. And brothers and sisters, this serves as a reminder to us that God wants a holy people. That that's what He desires. Ephesians 1.4, that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the earth, that we should be what? Holy and blameless. Ephesians 5 27, it says that Christ gave himself up for the church so that church would be holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Colossians 1.22, Paul, the apostle, said, How Jesus has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Beloved Jesus, he wants a pure bride. He wants a pure bride. That is his desire. And you know what? He's going to do whatever is necessary, even giving his own life in order to achieve that. And we learn here from Micah that for us to be useful to the Lord, we need to be holy vessels. We need to strive by God's grace to be holy. And we must allow God Allow him to clean out anything that will get in the way of that. Anything that we might be trusting in, whether it be our bank accounts, jobs, or abilities, other people. We must be willing to open up our idol vaults of lust and pride and selfishness, bitterness, greed. All of these things. Anything that we are worshiping, anything that we are seeking apart from Christ, anything that we desire more than Jesus, we need to give God full access and stop holding on to them and fighting Him. And yes, it's painful. And yes, it's scary. I'm certain some of you are probably in a process right now where there's someone in your life or a circumstance in your life, and you know what? God may be using that to rip away an idol. It's a difficult process. And sometimes I picture us at times like, uh, since we're all talking Star Wars 7 these days, like, like Yoda. Remember when he was in Dagobah system? And uh, this is a highly spiritual illustration, right? So he's called, you know, Luke's called to go into the Dagobah system and find this Yoda guy, and they find him. And you remember that little scene where Yoda's fighting R2-D2 for that cracker? And he's like, holding on to it? We're often like Yoda when we do that. It's mine, it's mine, I want to hold on to it. And God's saying, give it to me, you don't need it. In fact, it's bad for you. Be open and embrace God's sanctifying process, His purifying work in our lives. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is so much better than that cracker. (laughs) So much more satisfying. 
Let Him do His pruning work in your life. Amen? Now, before leaving this chapter, there, there's something I wanted to show you. Um, something I think you'll find very interesting and something that I think you'll find encouraging. Um, transition a little bit here. I want to show you this little piece of paper here. It's a fragment. It's actually a fragment from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was found in 1947, or was part of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this fragment is one of the oldest, not the oldest, but one of the oldest um, fragments that we have of the Bible. And recent scholarship has dated this fragment 50 to 100 years before Christ. Some actually say it's older than that. Guess what's on this fragment? What book of the Bible? How did you guys know that? (laughs) Yeah, it's Micah. Actually, on the left column is a portion of Micah chapter 4, and on the right is a portion of Micah chapter 5. In fact, um, right up here, that's the word for Assyria from verse 5. There's another fragment. This picture's not as clear, but this one is more significant to me because, again, it's been dated at least 100 years before Christ. This fragment actually contains Micah 5 too. In fact... Trust me on this. Right here is the word for ruler in Greek. Up here is, you can see, the last five letters of Ephrathah. And what's cool about this to me is this is just another piece of confirming evidence that that prophecy that Matthew wrote about, he didn't make it up. He didn't conjure that up. It was in existence. He may have had a copy of this work or one like it. These scrolls were found outside of Jerusalem. This is a copy that was written at least 100 years, 150 years before Matthew wrote his gospel. And this copy is from an original or a copy of the original that Micah first spoke over 700 years before Jesus came. And yet he was able to exactly predict the birthplace of the Messiah. Now how does that come about? And there are many prophecies about Jesus like that one made hundreds of years before Jesus came that have come to pass. All that the Bible has said about Jesus is true. It is true. And the question before us all is, what will you do with what you know? What will you do with it? You know what? This same passage, this was before Herod's scribes, they'd studied it. They understood it. They knew what it meant. In fact, so much so, they were so confident in knowing what it meant, they told Herod immediately, Oh, Herod, we know exactly where the Messiah is going to come from. Bethlehem. That's what the prophet said. But you know what amazes me? Here these guys are. They tell Herod where the Messiah is going to come from because there's this huge entourage of these pagan Gentiles that they thought came in there with all these gifts of gold and spices and they come in with all their stuff and they're asking King Herod, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? And the scribes, they know exactly. And what blows me away is they didn't follow the Magi. I mean, this was no ordinary circumstance that happened, right? With all these guys that came in. Something was up, but these scribes could have cared less. They spout out the prophecy. They go back into studying whatever they were studying. They totally missed it. They totally missed it. Herod totally missed it. He heard the truth. 
And you have the truth before you. That God's king has come. He was prophesied. He has come. And he will come again. This has been proven by prophecy from Micah and many others. It's been proven by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. His death on the cross was payment for sin. If any who would repent and believe, put their trust in Christ, ask for forgiveness, and come before the King and bow down, commit their lives to Him. But I fear there may be some in here who are like the scribes, who know the truth to be for you, and yet you're going to go on with your lives just as the scribes did. Or maybe, God forbid, there are some who are like Herod who not only don't respond to the truth, but seek to destroy it. But my prayer for you, for all of us, is that we'd be like the Magi. Those guys, they sought the truth in earnest. That was not an easy trip to take. And once they found it, they believed. Once they found it, they gladly gave up their possessions to this young child. And once they found it, they fell on their faces and worshipped him. And that's what this wonderful prophecy in Micah should bring about in our own hearts. So when Christmas does actually come, <laughs> six months from now, and I'm sure that we'll probably hear this verse quoted, we may see it on a Christmas card, uh, probably read it as we're looking again at the Christmas story. And when we see these words from Micah, may they again remind all of us to worship and exalt this wonderful Messiah. May they remind us too that just as Micah said, he's coming back. He's returning. And may they remind us that he deserves our worship just as the end of Psalm 2 says, do homage to the Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful prophecy uh, just so clear so many prophecies in the scripture lord that show beyond a shadow of a doubt not only did you come but what you claimed is true that you are a son of god who became man who is god's messiah and that it is you and you alone that we can find salvation that we can find true peace with god and it is in you alone we can have fellowship with you and with your children, and it's in you alone that we can find forgiveness. Lord, I pray that there would be none here who would be as the scribes and, Lord, know these things but do nothing with them. Lord, I pray that you would move in each of our hearts to be like those magi, God, who showed such great faith and, Lord, such... Uh, humility and worshiping you as you rightly deserve. Hey, may that reflect our hearts. Thank you so much for this prophecy from, from Micah. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.